Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. And this is Good Shepherd Sunday. And in the gospel from John chapter 10, Jesus says that he's the voice, that he's the gate. He is the good shepherd. The same one who would tell us he's the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is giving us his interior reflection on the meaning of the resurrection. Let's now turn to the gospel and the story of Easter in these first four weeks and reflect on Jesus the Good Shepherd and my vocation story. So it's Good Shepherd Sunday and I've been reflecting on my 25 years of priesthood. Yes, fans, this year is my 25th year as a Catholic priest. And it really has been a wonderful, wild ride. I don't think any of us expected uh, what's happened in the church and in the larger world in the last 25 years. And so Good Shepherd Sunday is a good time to take stock. And so in Good Shepherd Sunday, Jesus says he's the voice, he's the gate, he's the good shepherd. He's how we enter into eternal life. And he says in John chapter 10, he came to give us life and have it abundantly. Do you ever think sometimes you're just existing? I mean, what does it mean to be fully alive? Because in our lives, we have lots of goals. I mean, we have lots of goals. Things we have to do every day. Some of them important, some of them maybe less so. And then we have goals that are ambition of, of what we want to do with our lives, what we hope to accomplish, maybe how others will notice us. But the truth of all of it is, is they're all against the background of the one goal, and that is eternal life. Uh, with God and with those that we love. Um, and so Easter is very much about that mystery. You know, here, think about uh, where you're at in the Easter season, fourth Sunday of Easter. And Good Shepherd Sunday, where Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd, it's a very different kind of story in Easter because if you remember in the first three Sundays of Easter, we've had stories that are all eyewitness testimonies uh, to the truth of the resurrection. And so on week one, Easter Sunday, it's a story if you remember how Mary goes to the tomb and it's empty. She goes back to see the 11 and tell them they've taken the Lord's body. Then the old guy, Peter, and the young guy, John, race to the tomb. The young guy wins the race. When they get there, they enter the tomb together, and what they both see is an empty tomb. And on one end is the shroud that's been carefully folded and put together. And on the other end, the, the a piece of cloth that covered his face. But as it said, uh, he they did not see. Now, the very next story is how Mary Magdalene encounters the risen Jesus, thinks he's the gardener. Um, but that's not where the church leaves us on that first Sunday. On the first Sunday, uh, all we have is two disciples in an empty tomb. And the one, the young guy believes, and the old guy's not sure what to believe. Because doubt and belief are just like light and shadow in the story of the resurrection. The second Sunday of Easter, remember, um, the, there are 11 disciples left because Judas has hung himself. But on that second Sunday after the resurrection, um, there's 10 of them in the upper room because Thomas isn't there. And Jesus appears in front of them. 
And you remember he he is very embodied, and uh, he's not a ghost. And uh, he says, Shalom, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Um, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive or forgiven, whose sins you hold bound or held bound. It's, it's where the church begins, the mission of the church. Um, but Thomas isn't there. And in that story, Thomas says he's not going to believe unless he can put his hands in his side. You know, uh, just uh, what we think of as empirical evidence of the resurrection. But the truth of the matter is, is the resurrection is empirically true, but there's more to it than that. And mere empiricism, uh, what we can see, hear, smell, taste, and touch, does not exhaust what the resurrection is about. And so when Jesus appears on that second Sunday when Thomas is in the room and invites him to put his uh, hands in his side because Jesus knows what Thomas is thinking, because Jesus is God. God knows what we're thinking. Uh, He is closer to us than we are to ourselves, according to St. Augustine. Well, Thomas says, my Lord and my God. It's what we say, I think, sometimes in devotion, when the uh, sacrament of the Eucharist, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Christ, are raised. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. Blessed are those who are called to the supper of the Lamb. And the devout Catholic might say, my Lord and my God, um, just like St. Thomas. And then, if you remember the third Sunday, that would be last Sunday, Cleopas, who's probably St. Joseph's brother, and another man are walking down the road towards Emmaus when they're joined by a third man. And uh, they're going in exactly the opposite direction. All nations are supposed to stream to Jerusalem, but these two guys are running away as fast as they can. But by the end of the day, they've heard Jesus explain to them how the Old Testament uh, refers to him and foretells them, and then they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. And it's like this bridge because uh, it's a bridge between the resurrection, what we do at Mass, when we listen to the liturgy of the Word and we celebrate the liturgy of the Eucharist. But as to those first three Sundays, which are all resurrection stories, even though they connect it to the Mass, uh, still they're like eyewitness testimony of something that happened to Jesus and affects us religiously. But here on the fourth Sunday, um, we hear Jesus' voice and from before the uh, passion and his passion and his death before his resurrection. It's sometimes during his ministry, according to St. John. And it's in John chapter 10. And it's Jesus talking about how he is the good shepherd, how he's the gate, how he will bring his sheep into good pasture and they will find peace, that the, his sheep know his voice and they will hear it. And it's It's all about the entry to eternal life, and the Pharisees don't get it. But what Jesus is referring to is, again, just like the previous week with Cleopas and the other man on the the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking about the fulfillment of the Old Testament. If you go back to uh, the prophet Ezekiel, who was part of the uh, Babylonian exile uh, in the 6th, 7th century, 
uh, where he lived in Iraq, what is modern Iraq, what was then the kingdom of Babylon or the empire of Babylon, and how uh, Ezekiel said that the Lord appeared to him, and he said this, starting Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 10, if you want to check it out. Thus says the Lord God, look, I'm coming against these shepherds. I will take my sheep out of their hand and put a stop to their shepherding my flock so that these shepherds will no longer pasture them. I will deliver my flock from their mouths so it will not become their food. For thus says the Lord God, look, I myself will search for my sheep and examine them. As a shepherd examines his flock, while he himself is among his scattered sheep, so will I examine my sheep. I will deliver them from every place where they were scattered on the day of dark clouds. I will lead them out from among the peoples and gather them from the lands. I will bring them back to their own country and pasture them upon the mountains of Israel, in the ravines and in every inhabited place in the land. In good pastures I will pasture them. On the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will, there they will lie down on good grazing ground. In rich pastures they will be pastured on the mountains of Israel. I myself will pasture my sheep. My sheep, I myself will give them rest. The oracle of the Lord God. And so uh, it's the fulfillment of, of prophecy, just like in the story of the resurrection from the last week. But it's what God will do, what God's interior intention is. It's why this week on Good Shepherd Sunday, we have Psalm 23 um, about uh, the Lord will be my shepherd, I shall not want. For he leads me to verdant pastures where he gives me repose. This understanding of God as the good shepherd calling his sheep, leading his sheep, this is deep in the Old Testament. And so uh, hearing his voice. And I was, as I thought about, we listened to Rhonda Grunwald at the priest convocation this week, uh, where I received a nice papal blessing for 25 years of service in the church. Um, but talking about vocations and where vocations come from. And it made me reflect on my vocation story, not just as like a witness saying what happened in my life, which I'll briefly recount, but also I want to talk to you about what happened on the day of my ordination, which still touches me very deeply. And I think of the Good Shepherd uh, when I think of the day of my ordination. And so let's close up this part of Oral Valley Catholic and uh, listen to my vocation story. Several times I've read St. Augustine's Confessions and aside from the New Testament, it may be the most famous book written uh, for Christians. Uh, and he wrote it when he had just become Bishop of Hippo at the end of the uh, the fourth century and the beginning of the fifth. And it's a story about how he left his career, uh, St. Augustine, and then uh, became a, a, a monk, then a priest, then a bishop. And it really, it's, it's like the beginning of biography or autobiography, but it's also this uh, extended prayer. St. Augustine, um, he's written, I was listening to one uh, lecture about him, he wrote something well over a million words. And in those million words, there were 414,000 or 441,000 uh, references to scripture. 
And the Confessions is, is a long scriptural commentary on uh, the book of Genesis and the story of the prodigal son. It's about reflection on evil in his life, but also about how he, he had left and uh, lived the life of the prodigal son before he came to his senses and returned to his father's house. Russell Hittinger, a, uh, a uh, theologian here in the United States, teaches a Catholic you, he made a comment about the confessions. He said, it really, the genre, the story it tells is the same story that's told over and over in uh, Greco-Roman culture. It's the story of returning home. And it, that's part of the story of the prodigal son, if you remember the story. But he says, like the Odyssey, it's, you know, how does Odysseus get home? In uh, the kind of the three parts of it, um, which help uh, someone reflect, and it may have a reflection on, in your own story, is who's my father, what's it mean to be a son, and how do I get home again? Because the whole sense of uh, the human drama is that you have all sorts of things that keep you busy, places that we call home, but always a sense that it can always change, it can always be taken away from us. We never have the security of of what home really entails, where we never really lie down in pastures, or where we have life abundantly. Hittinger said that uh, Julius Caesar, the famous Roman emperor, um, told his story in the Gallic Wars um, about um, home and father and loss. And here's how he said, and this is a very Roman story. Uh, Julius Caesar says, who's my father? Well, it's not Bob, if you're wondering. He says it's Mars, the god of war. How can I be his son? Well, he joins the army at age 18. How does he get home? Well, he becomes the Roman emperor. Um, and so uh, you can see how this story of uh, this ache that all of us have uh, for going home, uh, how it can be perverted in all these other little stories as if the greatest thing that ever happened to Julius Caesar is that he'd become emperor. They slaughtered the poor uh, Gauls in, in what is now France. Um, and his end, like with most violent men, ended violently being stabbed to death. St. Augustine tells the same story because uh, as he thinks about it, he is a classically trained rhetorician, um, what we might think of as an ancient lawyer. And um, he talks about who his father is. And he, in his book, The Confessions, he doesn't like his own natural father very much. He's a pagan, and apparently they clashed. He thought that uh, he had done a poor job of raising him, and Augustine had fallen into some bad traps because of bad example from his dad. His mom, she was a Christian, but also had some very strong pagan ways. She was only like partly converted according to St. Augustine. And so he says it's God himself that led him on this story of this homecoming. So he's born in this little town in northern Africa, doesn't exist anymore, called Thagaste. And he says his parents spent all their money giving him the best education possible. And so uh, he said they really didn't do it for love of me, though. They did it because it would bring honor on their family if I did well. So it's like, you know, the, the person that drives around and with a bumper sticker on their car says, my child is an honor student at such and such a school. Uh, so that's Augustine griping about that in his old age. 
uh, whether he's being fair to his parents or not, you can decide. But he has to get out of Thagaste, so he goes away to college in like the second biggest town in the empire called Carthage. It's on the north coast of uh, Africa, though it's in ruins now. And uh, if you listen to his story, it's a pretty dissolute story. His parents are footing the bill and they really can't afford the education he's getting. And he partakes of the, all the same um, poor choices that college students always seem to make through the, uh, through the ages. He talks once about dishonoring a Catholic church because his mom wanted to be a Catholic, but he decided he wasn't gonna do it because his mom wanted him to do it, basically. So he and a woman had a uh, carnal moment, as he says. He indulged his carnal appetites while mass was going on in the church. I mean, uh, this guy is he's, hes what we would think of as transgressive now. Uh, and so he's actually kind of a, a successful in Carthage. He falls in with the Manichaeans who think they're Christians, but they are really just one of those outgroups that just really does not, rejects orthodoxy, as you and I would understand it, and has these, uh, has tried to take over Jesus' name to kind of uh, give credence to what their, um, what their Manichaean beliefs are, which would be fun to talk about, but it doesn't have much to do with Christianity. But he joins them because they have a lot of really good contacts, and uh, he gets some really good jobs, and he does pretty well because he's a really competent guy. Then his mom shows up in Carthage because she's, she's trying to rein him in. So without saying goodbye to his mom, he gets on a boat with some of his pals and he heads off to Rome. And with his Manichaean contacts, he gets some more work and he rises up and uh, he gets what he really wants. Uh, he wants to be noticed. He wants people to say, hey, Augustine. Uh, by this time, he's taken a concubine. And it, it's not, a, concubines aren't prostitutes. In the ancient world, you could not marry below your station. That really uh, still exists to some extent in our world. Mostly college-educated people don't marry people who are not college-educated. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but overwhelmingly, that does not happen. Um, people who are very, very wealthy don't generally marry people that are uh, not so much wealthy, although it happens, but not very much. And so he couldn't marry her because they weren't of the same social class. He never even mentions her name. Uh, but he does have a child with Rodeodotus. And then what happens? Well, Mama shows up in Rome. And so Augustine figures a way to depart also. And he goes to Milan where he gets like the, the best job you can imagine if you're trying to be the imperial rhetor, uh, that you're a rhetorician, a lawyer. He gets the job of being the... Uh, spokesperson for the emperor. And so uh, think of the press secretary for, uh, for any number of our presidents. Uh, speak of the people that are constantly spinning things in Washington. And uh, as he says, and I'll read it in a, <laughs> in a moment, you know, how he basically is getting paid to lie and to, and to make big deals out of small military victories. It's a, just a PR job, basically. Um, but he's on his way to this big opportunity where he's going to speak on behalf of the emperor. And he's with his friends, and he passes this drunk on the street in Milan. And um, here's what he says. I recall how miserable I was and how one day you brought me, he's talking to God, to a realization of my miserable state. I was preparing to deliver a eulogy upon the emperor 
in which I would tell plenty of lies with the object of winning favor with the well-informed by my lying. So my heart was panting with anxiety and seething with feverish, corruptive thoughts. As I passed through a certain district in Milan, I noticed with me how many hardships our idiotic enterprises entailed. Goaded by greed, I was dragging my load of unhappiness along and feeling it all the heavier for being dragged. Yet while all our efforts were directed solely to the attainment of unclouded joy, it appeared that this corruption had already beaten us to the goal, a goal which we would perhaps never reach ourselves. With the help of the few paltry coins he had collected by begging, this man was enjoying the temporal happiness for which I strove by so bitter, devious, and roundabout a contrivance. His joy was no true joy, to be sure. But what I was seeking in my ambition was a joy far more unreal, and he was undeniably happy while I was full of foreboding. He was carefree. I was apprehensive. And so Augustine is talking about just being trapped, uh, creating a prison for himself, because the stoutest prisons that are made are the ones we create for ourselves, the worlds we can uh, just hold other people out and never really encounter who we're made to be. So the way out, John chapter 10. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved, will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and slaughter and destroy. I came so that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And so that idea that we have many goals in life, and if they somehow aren't integrated into the one goal that is fundamentally important, abundant life in God, then we end up like St. Augustine as he complains about himself before his conversion. Um, what does it mean to experience life abundantly? Well, to experience God and to experience others. We seek, it seems to me, by our ambitions uh, to get all the things that we think will make us happy. We want to be the center of attention. We want people to think we've done well. We want other people to look up to us. But sometimes that is more trapped than treat. Maybe mostly it's more trapped than treat because all those things get taken away. So you create this life possibly where you create a prison for yourself. You know, you can look at the resurrection as those first three Sundays and talk about what it was like to see the resurrected Jesus. Or you can experience the resurrection if you think of what it's like to encounter the Good Shepherd, to hear his voice, to take it seriously, to enter through the gate, and to experience life. You know, I think of my own vocation story, and it's, it's like reading the Confessions in one sense. Um, you can look at it from a third person and in the past, and this is like I left the practice of law almost 30 years ago. So I don't, I don't think I remember it as it actually really happened. But I remember my vocation starting because I was a kid at St. Peter and Paul, and I had to do a uh, book report. And so I picked up this book off the shelf, this little like pastel-colored uh, hagiography, saint story of St. John Vianney. I picked it up because his name was John. I had no other motivation than that. Um, but boy, I got to say that thrilled me. Uh, in a way, nothing else seemed to thrill me. And so I really started to think about a pre being a priest. And so, 
You know, like my dad offered to send me to Regina Clary, which was the minor sem seminary here at the time. But I think it closed down, actually, when I was at South Point. I decided, I, I thought maybe I wanted to to go to South Point because it was a co-educational institution. But once I got dating out of my uh, out of my system, I'd go off to college seminary, which I lasted a year and a half in. And it was a pretty deflating experience because it wasn't anything like that story of John Vianney. Uh, it wasn't nearly as loving as my family was. It was just, uh, I was not mature enough for it. So uh, went out, got my law degree, practiced law, was pretty ambitious, did pretty well in some ways. But what I would say about the whole thing was I really do identify with St. Augustine's story, that ancient lawyer. Uh, and so after 20 years of practicing law, 38 years old, I was I was back in the seminary. But, um, and obviously now, 25 years after that ordination, 30 years after those decisions were being made, or 29 years, I think. Although I was, I think, uh, like the most reluctant person to go to the seminary. It took me about four years uh, to think about it. So, uh, you know, make it up more like 34, 33 years ago that I started thinking about it the second time. But I want to tell you about what happened on the day of my ordination. When I left the practice of law, I had talked to very few people outside of my family about what my intentions were, mostly because I didn't think people would understand it, because mostly the people I knew in the practice of law weren't religious and uh, couldn't quite get it. And I just didn't want to talk to them about it, um, was how I remember it. But I talked to my friend Tim Record, who was very supportive, talked to Rob Rao, one lawyer I worked with. He was a Lutheran, but he was a religious guy. And so he understood what was going on. But to the mentors in my life practicing law, uh, Judge Alfredo C. Marcus, John Lindbergh, Bill Tinney, these guys who had really taken me under their wing and helped me to get ahead, uh, they I never even bothered to talk to because I just thought I just didn't want to deal with it. So on the day of my ordination, um, I have sent out a few invitations, but you know, not a lot. And um, I am go through it, and it's kind of a blur. Uh, I don't remember a lot about it, but uh, you think I would, but I don't. But there's this part at the end where you stand out in front of the cathedral, and then people come up and ask you for your blessing. And this uh, judge, Judge Alfredo C. Marcus, grew up in Winkleman and Hayden, and uh, was a very well thought of uh, federal uh, judge, and he had really given me a break by giving me that job. He came up and asked me for my blessing. And uh, he's dead now, but it touched me so deeply that he came without an invitation uh, to my ordination. At my first mass, these older guys I'd practiced law with, John Lindbergh and Bill Tinney, were at that mass. I remember the homily I spoke and I remember giving Timmy, Tinny a hug because, like I said, I never even bothered to talk to him. And we, we'd, have been, we'd been friends. We'd spent time together. But the fact that they would come, that touched me deeply. Uh, still does. Because the prisons we make in life, we make for ourselves. How we hold other people out, we do it to ourselves. You know, one of the best things about that day of ordination, besides those three guys showing up, uh, or showing up at my first Mass on the following Sunday, was that the party we had at my brother's house, uh, there were lots of nieces and nephews there by that time, and the record kids came. 
Uh, but uh, I think it's the only priest ordination ever held in the Diocese of Tucson where there was a jumping castle uh, for all the kids. And so standing around and having lunch, you know, my family had paid for and friends gathering around uh, and all these kids running around, you know, the sense of what vocation is, um, you can abstract it like the stories of the resurrection and you can tell your story and it's true, but it's kind of like telling why you married your spouse uh, story. And yeah, the story is true, but it's not the same as the story of how vocation can change you and help you see more clearly who you are. You know, a vocation, like to the priesthood or the married life, is not an occupation. It's not a job. Uh, we call it a calling, that it's God's voice. It's the good shepherd's voice. Because frankly, they can't pay you enough to do it. It's not really a job showing up and being a dad or being a mom or being a husband or being a wife or being a priest or a deacon. Uh, it's the place where you belong in the community and where you're going to serve the community from. You know, you can have lots of goals in life, it seems to me, ways that you try to make yourself happy. But unless they connect with the one big goal, I don't think that you're ever, my opinion, that you're ever actually rooted in the eternal life that God promises in the resurrection. It's why marriage is a sacrament. It's why holy orders is a sacrament. Um, and for single people or people who have been disappointed uh, in priests or have or disappointed ex-priests or, or divorced or whatever the walk and call is, you know, it is a challenge to live a vocation. Um, and the whole story of the resurrection is always the story of shadow and light working together and how it is that God works through this all for our, for our salvation. But I love Good Shepherd Sunday. I love Jesus talking about who he is. And I don't think you can understand the resurrection unless you hear it as a call to you, that it's a gate that you go through to find pasture, and that it's Jesus himself who's there to welcome you. So I hope you have a wonderful Good Shepherd Sunday. Probably won't have a jumping castle, but uh, you know, we can all succeed like that. One real ambition, eternal life. Everything else is some goal which more or less serves the one goal that really matters. This has been another uh, episode of Oral Valley Catholic. And I'll see you or hear, at least talk to you next week. <laughs>